Good morning, God's people. Praise the Lord for our time together, but our time together before his face, our time together with him. You know, as Josh was praying earlier, it just made me think about something I know I take for granted, and that is what it means for God's people to gather and pray. You know, we hear all of this singing. We see the effect of that. We are in our Bibles together. But just to think about what corporate prayer is, that God's people gather together and collectively offer their voice to God through one person, whoever that might be. Uh, Collectively, we are, through that individual praying, offering our one unified voice to God as a church. What an incredible thing that is. And to think that we do that boldly with confidence coming into God's throne of grace. We come knowing that he hears us and that he is gracious to us uh, individually, as families, as a church. And so what a privilege to come and just pray together this morning. If you would go with me in your Bibles to Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6. That is our text today. And we always have a text uh, before us uh, as we go through God's Word. We, we go through God's Word expositionally here at Four Quarters, and uh, we've been going through Exodus. So if you're visiting with us, we, this is the book that we're in, and we now find ourselves uh, here in Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments. So if you're visiting maybe uh, and you haven't been in church, this is probably a passage that you uh, are somewhat familiar with, even if you're not familiar very much with the Bible. Last week, we looked at the first commandment in verse 3. So we're going through the Ten Commandments. Uh, We just started last week. We looked at the first one in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me or in my presence or upon my face. Various ways of translating that. But uh, no other gods is is the idea. You shall have no other gods before me. God's people are to worship Yahweh alone. As he says so clearly and powerfully through Isaiah the prophet, in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, this is my name. My glory I give to no other. What a powerful verse that is for the exclusivity of the worship of Yahweh, that there is no other God No other God alongside of Yahweh or in place of Yahweh uh, is worthy of our worship, but this one God, the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not a generic God, but the God of the Bible. We worship not the God of our own imagination. That's what happens if we neglect God's word, but we worship the God of Scripture. To worship anything or anyone other than God, is to worship a creature. We recognize that there is a fundamental distinction in reality. There is the distinction between the creator and the created. The creator and the creature. All things, even heavenly beings, the mightiest and most beautiful angels, are mere creatures, regardless of how Illuminescent they might be, how clothed in splendor they might be, how powerful. If one were to show up this morning, we would all be terrified in its presence. And they are mere creatures. 
To worship anything or anyone other than Yahweh is to worship a creature. It is to transfer in our hearts, at the very least, and externally in all kinds of ways, it is to transfer the glory of the immortal God to another. Now, we, we cannot affect that kind of change. We do not have that kind of power. We have no power or dominion over God's glory. God is glorious, whether you or I worship him or not. He is glorious. God will have and does have his glory. But nonetheless, when we worship other gods, false gods, we transfer functionally God's glory from him to another. As Romans chapter 1 verse 25 says, it is to exchange the truth about God for a lie and to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. The creator is blessed forever because he is the alpha and the omega. He is the first and the last. He was and is and forever shall be. He is the I am. He is Yahweh. He simply is. He is blessed forever in a way that nothing else is because he is the eternal living God. To use the words from Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 10, to engage in false worship, is to trade the true and living God for a lie. All false gods are pretenders. They are usurpers. They are lies. They are liars. And that means for us, as we think about what false worship is, as we think about false religions, as we think about occultic practices, as we think about idolatry and all of this, as we think about atheism and secularism, humanism, really any ism that you can put aside from Yahwehism, all of it is deception at its core. Deuteronomy chapter 11 verse 16 says, take care lest your heart be deceived. That's what happens when we engage in false worship. That's what happens in idolatry. There's a lot of things happening, but one of the things is that our hearts, the core of who we are, don't, don't say heart, emotions, say heart, the person. The core of the person, the center of the person is the heart. And at the center of our persons, we are deceived. Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods And worship them. To engage in false worship is to be duped. It is to be duped. It is to be fooled. It is to play the fool. When we worship anything other than Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when anything gets between us and him, when anything takes his place, when anything becomes the object of our praises and affections, our joys, we are playing the fool. We are being little fools, little puppets of the deceiver, little puppets of the liar, And little puppets of our own self-deception. 
as we follow the course of this world. This is what Satan was trying to do to Christ in the wilderness. Satan was trying to deceive Christ as though that could be done. The very truth himself, the word himself, Satan was trying to deceive Christ, trying to lure him away from the Father's will to cause him to, to turn aside, to turn aside to another way. So let me read to you from part of that temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4. I'll read to you from verses 8 to 10. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain. And we don't know the dynamics of this, which mountain? Or was this some sort of vision? We don't know. We're not given the dynamics of it, but we know it happened. The devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Was this the kingdoms of the world at the time? Their glory at the time? Was this the kingdoms of the world and their glory across time? In all of human history, we know there's been some glorious kingdoms, the ruins of which we find all over the world. Glorious powers here today. We think even of the might of the United States as a world power, and that has been the case for quite a while, and we sitting here this morning are part of that nation. All the glory, all that power, Satan showed him all of this, and he said to him, all these I will give you, Jesus, right now. You can have it all. Not just a a patch like Nebuchadnezzar had or like Julius Caesar had or like Pharaoh had, but the whole thing. I'll give it all to you, Jesus, if you will fall down and worship me. If. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. Doesn't even... You know, the picture is not of Jesus scratching his chin. Jesus is not reflecting, taking time to sort of mull it over, you know, weigh it all out. Think about the various glories and powers and so forth of the world's kingdoms. Be gone, Satan. Away from me. For it is written... You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This is Christ in our place. Think about how many times we have not said, be gone, Satan. Think about how many times we've said, come on, Satan. Think about how many times we've said, yes, this is great, this is lovely, this is beautiful, it, it, it tastes good, and it will make me wise, and it is nice to the eyes, just like Eve. How many times have we said, yes, Satan? And Christ says, no, devil. He does this in our place. His righteousness becomes our righteousness by faith. Refusing the lie, upholding the Father's glory, rejecting Satan, winning the battle, obeying the first commandment. This is what 
Christ did. And here's the beautiful thing that we need to understand for us today. This is powerful. Yes, when we consider that Jesus did this in our place. We praise God for that. We praise God for our justification. That by faith in Christ, his righteousness has been imputed to our account and he took our sin upon the cross. That before the face of God, we are righteous in God's sight, apart from anything of ourselves, but because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. We take great joy in that doctrine as we ought to, but we must never forget that Christ did not just do this in the past in our place. He does this in the present in our hearts. Today and tomorrow, next week and next month and in the hour of greatest trial and in the hour of our death. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ in us, the conqueror of Satan, the conqueror of the flesh, the conqueror of sin, death, and hell. Christ won the victory, and he continues to pour out that victory in our lives every day as Satan tempts us to bow. And we say, no, by Christ's strength. As we saw last week, to break the first commandment is to substitute out God. It is to forget him and to chase after other gods. We never forget God without also falling into idolatry. To forget God, to forget his word, to forget his salvation, to fail to meditate on his word day and night, to to fail to pray without ceasing, His scripture is to forget and to go after idols. It is an inevitable thing. There's no neutrality. We don't just forget and then we're in neutral land on vacation spiritually. We slide. We always slide towards other gods. It is to be conformed to this world. It is to cater to our own sinful desire to exalt self, all idolatry, all false worship is about love of self, praise of self. And what we see is that Christ empowers us to refuse all of these things. That's what he's doing in us. That's what he's doing in our marriages and in our parenting. It's what he's doing at work. It's what he's doing when no one's looking. He's empowering us to refuse all of these things. Today, still very much on the topic of false worship, we come to the second commandment. And in fact, uh, some Christians uh, from the Roman Catholic and Lutheran tradition have taken uh, the first commandment, second commandment, and grouped them together as one, and then divided out the coveting command into two. That hasn't been the case historically in the Reformed tradition, and even in the earliest church So we're going to understand this to be the second commandment, verses four to six. Verse three is the first commandment, closely and tightly related to the second commandment in verses four to six. So the title this morning is the second commandment, no idols. Last week, Yahweh alone. This week, no idols. You see it getting more specific. So if you would stand with me as we read God's word together. 
And as we'll do throughout the Ten Commandments, we're going to read the whole uh, Ten Commandments. So we're going to start in verse one with the uh, one and two with the prologue, and then we'll go through verse seventeen. So this is the Word of God. Not of all parts today, this is the point where you don't check out. Okay, so is reading God's Word the most important thing we do here today? So please, this is not a pause or a break mentally. Exodus 20, beginning in verse 1, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me or in my presence. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or an idol or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates." For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You can go ahead and be seated. This is the word of God. It's interesting to me here, just as we look at verses 13 to 15, you shall not murder. Jesus associates that with even calling your brother a fool, or being angry in your heart, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus says, if you look upon a woman and lust after her, you've committed adultery, adultery already with her in your heart, and you shall not steal involves coveting. You've already stolen the thing that you want so bad from your neighbor. So who of us in this room has not done those three things? This is one of the ways we evangelize as we share our faith with people. We help them understand that they can't just go through and say, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't had an affair, therefore I'm good. But we help them to see the intent of the commandments. We help them see what the commandments do with regard to the heart. So let's pray and ask for God's grace as we go through his word. Father, we praise you. We come to you together as your people again. We lift up your holy name, not that you need our feeble exaltation of your name to be glorified, God. You are glory. 
But you call us to this, and you have ordained the praises of your name to be from the lips of your image-bearing creatures with soul and body, like the angels in our soul, like the ox and the ape and the lion in our bodies. And yet together, soul and body made in your image, rational, distinct from all other creatures, made in your image to praise your holy name. So God, we glorify you. Though feebly, we pray that our hearts would be pure. We pray that our thoughts would be true and focused. Lord, that we would glorify you through loving one another, through adhering to your word, Lord, bless us this morning with your spirit as he takes the scripture and pricks our hearts, as he does his work, his incisive surgical work that only he can do. Lord, we are blind often to the ways in which we are actively being deceived, the ways in which we are even deceiving ourselves. So Father, we pray that you would shine light where there is darkness in the corners of our hearts, that you would not only shine light, but that you would clean house. We pray for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Rain is a good thing on the roof at midnight. Maybe a little challenging for heavy eyelids during church service, so I pray that we will all be able to press on. Our passage this morning can be broken into two distinct parts, very easily identified, two distinct parts. So first we have the prohibition, verses 4 to 5a, so the very beginning of verse 5, and then we have the explanation, the latter part of verse 5 up through verse 6. So the prohibition and the explanation. Very simple outline there. So if you're taking notes, Just jot those down if you would like. So first, we're going to look at the prohibition, verses 4 to 5a. So look with me there. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or... Serve them. This is the command. At the heart of this command is in Hebrew a pestle. A pestle. You shall not make for yourself a pestle, an idol. And we get the word idol from the Greek word eidolon. Eidolon, something carved from wood or stone or made of wood and then covered in gold or silver. Or any other metal for that matter. So the idea initially is something carved in stone or something carved in wood. This is a a pestle. This is an idol. It is an object of worship, intrinsic to the idea, intrinsic to the word. If you look at how the word is used throughout scripture, uh, intrinsic to this word is that it is an object of worship. That's what an idol is. That's what a pestle is. Is It is a means of approaching, localizing, and representing the divine. And you think here about the Tower of Babel in, 
in, in all the ways that that sort of pictures future idolatry. The way in which man in his own attempts is trying to approach God in his own way as though God is, is just, just a little bit above us. He's just right up there past the clouds. Let's just get a little bit higher and we'll be up there right next to God. Maybe have a cup of tea with God right there here in our world. A means of approaching him, of localizing him. And representing the divine, whatever the divine may be for the worshiper. It is by definition a divine image, this pestle, an object of worship. But lest the Israelites think only in terms of wood, stone, and metal, because that would be tempting if the Lord had only said, you shall not make for yourself a pestle, if the Lord had only said that, then perhaps the Israelites, and we know how our hearts work, would have said, well, okay, so we can't carve it out of stone. We can't carve it out of wood. We can't take wood and and cover it in metal. We can't uh, somehow forge metal or anything like that. But, but we can, and we do that, right? With the things that we read in Scripture, we go looking for justification for whatever it is we want. There's that self-exaltation again. There's that love of self. We go looking to Scripture to find ways to twist Scripture like Satan did with Jesus so that we can find a way to do what we want to do. But God leaves no room for that here with regard to the pestle. The Lord adds to this with the word likeness. Of anything above, on or below the earth. The likeness of anything up there, down here, or under there. Any likeness, whether carved or simply depicted, there is to be no divine image making. And we'll talk about that in a moment. There is to be no divine image making, no idolatry. God has made man in his likeness. God has already seen to it. Let me put it this way, that there is an image of him on the earth. Think about that for a moment. We are living, breathing, walking images of God. If we want to know what God is like, we see in humanity. And we see this in all kinds of ways. Though the image of God is marred in us, we still recognize that we are nonetheless created in God's image. And so God has ordained that there is an image of himself on the earth, and it's human beings, as we read from the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1. It is not the prerogative of man to make images of God. God has chosen to create beings like us who image him according to his will. We are not God. We do not make images of God. And this word idol at the beginning of verse 4, has to be taken together with what is said at the beginning of verse 5. So look there, the very beginning of verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now these two observations, and I pay careful attention to what I'm saying here, these two observations, the fact that the word pestle intrinsically means a divine image, an object of worship, and the fact that verse 4 is followed immediately 
by verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, tell us that God is not forbidding the making of images in general. So we need to get that clearly. You could take that from the second part of verse 4 and think, okay, well, we're not allowed to make any images. There is no place for Christian art. There is no place for depicting or carving or painting or with Plato, whatever it is, making anything above, on, or below the earth. God is not here forbidding art, nor is he forbidding the use of images in the place of worship. And I think we, we get that. I want you to see where I'm getting that from the text. We get that from what, it, what a pestle is as an object of worship and from the fact that verse 4 is closely connected and I think explained by the beginning of verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. So let me support this for a moment with Scripture. We know, for example, that God commanded his people to make cherubim. Now, let me just ask you this. If human beings are going to be likely to worship something, they're probably, although this you know, has proven false, I think for a lot of cultures that worship all sorts of weird, lowly creatures like uh, bugs and lizards and so forth. But we would think, at least, logically, that if there, if there were a creature that human beings would be most likely to worship, it would be an angel. And it appears from Scripture that the angels, there, there's a hierarchy of angelic beings, and the cherubim are right at the top with the seraphim. The cherubim. And what we read in Exodus 25, 18 is a command from the Lord, the same God who commanded the second commandment that we read here. What we read there is a command from the Lord to actually make cherubim that are gold in the holiest place of the temple. So not just out on the outskirts, but in in the center of divine worship, there are these, these cherubim that are on the sides of the Ark of the Covenant connected with The mercy seat, Exodus 25, 18. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work. You shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. So the way some have interpreted verses four to six would not take into account what we find here. And that is that even in the place of worship, even in the holiest place, we have here these images. These works of art, these cherubim of gold. We know that later God will command that Moses make a serpent, a bronze serpent. He'll hold that up and they'll they'll look to that with their eyes and they'll be healed. And we know, of course, that later on they begin to worship the bronze serpent. And so here's what we need to understand. The bronze serpent went from being a divinely ordained symbol of sin and the need for healing, which is a picture of Christ raised up on the cross, it went from that to becoming an idol. It was not intrinsically an idol because it was a carved out image. It became an idol. So it is not image making per se that is the problem. The problem is idolatry. The problem is worship. Divine image making. Image making that is tied to worship. Image making that is tied to 
devotion. Which by definition entails bowing down and serving. Which is what we find at the beginning of verse 5. Idol worshipers in the ancient world with all the idols that are found. And you can go to any museum and see all of the idols there from all parts of the world. Idols were not simply made and then tucked away. They were not made and then put into a closet. They were made for the purpose of bowing down to them and serving them. This is idolatry. Offering oneself to an image of the divine. Looking to images for help. Praying to images exalting the images, bowing down before images, burning sacrifices to images. You know, I've, I have some, uh, I've had over the years some close friends who were Catholic, and I used to go to a monastery and spend time there with them and read the scriptures. It's funny, they would always be doing some of, their, some of their things, and I would have my Bible, you know, Baptist boy in the back on the pew reading my Bible, and they'd be doing their various kind of uh, things, but... Back then, in my early 20s, I, I was still kind of putting all of the things together, but I knew intrinsically that what I saw them doing in front of these pictures, what I saw them doing in front of the, the host, as they understand it, at the Eucharist, the bowing down and the way that they sort of stare at these images as a, as a vehicle of approaching God, whatever you call it, worship or veneration, semantics, if there is an image If there is a statue through which you approach the divine, it is like the Tower of Babel. Through which we come to God, a pathway to the divine. It is to break the second commandment. It is to sin against God. Isaiah vividly depicts the stupidity And there is no other word. By the way, some parents may not be comfortable with this, but there is a a function for the word stupid. Just like there is a function for the word hate. I remember when our kids were little, I used to say, don't say, we used to, our British friends would would do this, so we started doing this. We would say, don't say hate, but hate's a good word. Hate's a good word when we're talking about sin. Hate's a good word when we're talking about the course of this world. It's not a good word when they're talking about their brother or their sister. It's not good when they're talking about just colloquial things like, you know, I hate this food or whatever. Obviously, there's a better way to say that. But the word stupid has its place too. We must never forget. Isaiah vividly depicts the stupidity, sheer stupidity of idol making. And idol worshiping. Isaiah 44 verses 16 to 17. Listen to this. It was read earlier. But I want to hone in on this particular image of stupidity. A carpenter with wood. This is what he says. And you can see him sort of. You know tongue in cheek. Sort of smiling at this stupidity. Mocking it much like Elijah at Mount Carmel. Mocking those ridiculous priests of Baal who are dancing around cutting themselves all day long like fools. Half of it he burns in the fire. The wood he's cut down, that is. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. 
He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha! I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, he, he makes into a god. His idol. Part of it, fire. Other half, God. And he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it. And says, Deliver me, for you are my God. The other half in the fire, still burning. Stupidity. Sheer stupidity. All idolatry looks like that. Let me say that again. All idolatry of every form in every age looks like that. We read that and we go, oh, whoa. And it's funny it's so stupid. But that's what we do. That's what we do when we worship idols. That's what we do in our false religion. That's exactly what we do when we put anything in the place of God and anything comes between us and God. It's that. But aside from the sheer stupidity of it, what is the problem with idolatry? I mean, we kind of, we know, it's obvious, right? It doesn't even really need an explanation. But let's explore it for a moment, just cracking open the egg, just sort of scratching the surface. What's the problem with idolatry after all? Well, first, as we saw last week, we are not to substitute or supplement. So in this respect, the second commandment repeats what is in the first. We have, we have a reiteration in one respect as we come from the first commandment to the second commandment. That's why some will lump the two together and see them as One, two distinct commandments, but repetition here of the first. But second, we recognize that God is holy. Everything has to do with the holiness of God. Every doctrine, every truth, every aspect of reality ultimately goes to the fact that God is holy. He's set apart. He is other. And God, this God, this holy God, this other God, this set-apart God, chose to reveal himself to Israel without form so that they would not try to capture his presence with an idol. And so we find this in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 15 to 16. Imagine, just for a moment, if God would have appeared on Mount Sinai like he appeared, say, at the tent of Abraham before Sodom and Gomorrah incident. Or if he would have appeared uh, like he appeared when he wrestled with Jacob. And Jacob's name was changed to Israel. That is not the way the Lord chose to reveal himself to Israel. We read this in Deuteronomy 4 verses 15 to 16. Therefore watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb. Out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves. Now notice this. God is talking about the worship of himself. He's telling them, don't try to depict me and bow down to me by those means. And it's interesting. The whole golden calf incident is interesting because you get this this reference to God's plural 
And, and yet, it, from Aaron's language, it appears that this is a form of Yahweh worship. But it is misguided. It is not Yahweh worship. Because any time we try to worship God apart from his word, apart from his revealed will, by means of an idol, by means of something else, it is idolatry. He ceases to be God. He ceases to be the God of the Bible. And he becomes a God of our own imagination. No form. They are not to try to depict God and bow down to him, even if what they are doing in name is worshiping Yahweh. Third, God is living. Now, this may be something you haven't thought of very much, but this is a big emphasis in Scripture, that God is, that God is living, God is present God is dynamically active with his creation. He is imminent. Idols are what? Dead. What do idols do? They sit there or stand there or lay there. And unless a human being comes along and moves them, they don't move. Thinking about what a pestle would have been for ancient Israel to Gods of the nations, the gods of the Egyptians, the gods of the Canaanites, the gods of Mesopotamia. No, God is living. They do nothing. Idols do nothing, but God does everything. God is omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. Idols are none of those things. Omni means all. God has all. Idols have none. We're not talking about gradation here. We're not talking about idols are slightly inferior. We're talking about polar opposites. God is living. Idols are nothing. Jeremiah 10 verses 14 to 15 says, These images are false and there is no breath in them. They are worthless. False, breathless, and worthless. All of our idols and all of the idols in those days. Well, false, breathless, and worthless is not God. So he is not to be depicted in that way. Any image of Yahweh himself as a means of worship would be a grotesque lie. For this reason, God is living. There's one image of God. There's one perfect and true image of God. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 In that verse, Paul says that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. If we want to know what God is like, we look at Christ as he is revealed in Scripture. John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Christ is the image of God. To know Christ is to know God. To see Christ in his glory on the pages of scripture is to see the Father. Finally, what's the problem with idols? And I think this one is particularly pertinent to us. Idols are made and controlled by us. Who's in charge of our idols? We get to figure out what they look like. How tall they are, and I speak here metaphorically because we're not living in a sort of idolatrous culture in the sense of pestles everywhere. But we get to decide 
We get to decide the ethics of our idol, the gray areas, the nuances. We get to decide when and where we take our idols. Here, but not there. Now, but not then. We're in control. We're God. And that's part of idolatry. That's the heart of idolatry is worship of self. As I read last week, we don't, we don't actually put the idols on the throne. We put ourselves on the throne. We use idols to worship ourselves. That's who we really love. Self. We make our idols. We control our idols. And we live our merry old lives right up until death. Worshipping away. No. Idols are made and controlled, but the Lord is not. We do not coerce God. We do not control God. He is Lord. He is the creator. And he is the Lord. God does the making. God does the controlling. We have no control over him at all. Who are you, O man? Paul says. God is not an idol. So that's the prohibition. And we should beware of being deceived that this only applies to those who live in a polytheistic culture where carved images are worshipped. You go to India, other parts of the world, China, Taiwan, Thailand. Go to all different parts of the world. You can find... Idols, much like Israel would have seen and experienced, is just like that. It's just kept on from the past. We could be tempted to think this is not us. This doesn't speak to us, but it does. As we talked about last week, we have our idols, but they are more subtle. And typically, when we mix secularism with materialism, we actually begin to see that we do have physical idols. We actually do. This is not just a a metaphorical thing. It's not just a heart thing. Idols that pop into my imagination. No, 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 no. We've got idols too. How many times do you look at your phone in a day? Track it. Social media. All those likes. Posting all those photos so people can see your life. How great it's going. How nice it looks. We have idols. And we bow down to those idols. And Satan deceives us into thinking they are no idols at all. It's normal. This is what we do. This is our culture. This is the course of this world. So we see first the prohibition. Now we see the explanation. By the way, I will give this caveat to what I just said. (laughs) I'm not saying using social media, having a phone, posting pictures on social media is intrinsically bad. What I am saying is that those things do quickly become idols. And they demonstrate a desire to exalt self in the world. So the prohibition, secondly, we have the explanation. Look at the latter part of verse 5 through verse 6. For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my 
commandments. Here, we have the explanation for the prohibition. Marked by this word for. Now, this word for is very important here. It helps us to understand the logic of the passage. This word for tells us that what we are about to encounter is the reason and the motivation for what has gone before. What we're going to read in these verses, what we just read in the latter part of verse 5 and verse 6, is the reason and the motivation for the command, the prohibition. God is explaining to his people why they are to heed this command. And first, it has to do with his nature. Notice that. It has, first of all, to do with who God is. It doesn't have, first of all, uh, to do with anything really about us. It has to do with who God is. This must be obeyed because of who God is. And, of course, we've just looked at some reasons for that based on who God is that are unstated here, but that we find throughout Scripture. But here we see explicitly this reference to God and who he is. He is a jealous God. I'll say that again. Even in the face of Oprah Winfrey, she had a problem with this. He is a jealous God. God is fiercely jealous. Now, this sounds strange to our ears. It's just weird. It sounds weird. In our culture, as we think about the meaning of the word jealous, as we think about how it plays out, and this can sometimes translate zealous, by the way, zealous or jealous. Uh, but as we think about this, this is certainly, of all the characteristics of God, this is not the first one that comes to mind. Maybe it's not even the fifth or the tenth, and maybe it doesn't even make the list. But here we are, in the Ten Commandments, given very explicitly and very early This characteristic of the Lord our God. That means it's important. It is probably not the one that you first think of in your evangelistic encounters. As you're sharing your faith at Starbucks or sharing your faith with your neighbor while you're out walking your dog or whatever. You don't think, I need to tell them God is jealous. (laughs) This is what they have to hear today. This is not the first thing that comes to our mind. Or when we are discussing God with our children at night. God is love. Yes. God judges sin. Yes. But does God is jealous make the list? We need to see that it is a key attribute of God. He is a jealous God. And the best way to understand this rightly is to picture the relationship between a husband and a wife. That's the way we have to understand this if we are to make sense of it. If we are not to just immediately think of what jealousy does in the heart of a person. Ugh. That is so unbecoming of God. Or, ugh. If God is like that, he's not worthy of my worship. No, he is. And in fact, he is because he is jealous. We picture a husband and a wife. Let me put it this way to all of us. Wives, think about this from your perspective. Husbands, from your perspective. Children, think about it in terms of your parents' marriage. What kind of husband would sit back and idly let another pursue and seduce his wife? What? Who would do that? We would say that such a husband is passive, 
apathetic, uncommitted to the marriage, we would say that such a husband does not love his wife, period. We certainly would never consider that a virtue, ever. Well, the opposite of that is what the text has in view here about God. So picture that. See all of that in its grotesqueness. See all of that in its nastiness, in its viciousness. See all of that in its lack of love and then think God is jealous. Praise him. He's not that with his people. He's the opposite of that with his people. God is jealous. He is jealous with regard to his bride. Israel is presented as God's bride. As we see with the church in the New Testament. The church is the bride of Christ. And here's an important thing we need to see. In the Bible, idolatry is often depicted as adultery. So the the imagery that, that the Bible gives, that the Holy Spirit gives throughout Scripture, is that idolatry is adultery. In, in terms of the relationship, to, to worship idols is to break fidelity with the Lord in a way that a, a wife, if she began to be unfaithful to her husband, that's what's happening. That's a picture. That's a physical picture. We, get, we all get that in our minds. That's a physical picture of what is happening when God's people go after idols. Infidelity. We see this with Hosea, in particular, the prophet Hosea, where the emphasis is on idolatry being adultery. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 23 to 24 says, Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. The important word here is covenant. God has made a covenant with his people. And he is jealous over that covenant. Why? Why is God jealous over the covenant with his people? It is because of his covenant keeping love. Here's what I'm saying. To deny that God is jealous is to deny that he loves us. It is to deny that he really cares for our good. It is to deny that he really cares at all about the relationship between us, his people, and himself. God is jealous because of his covenant-keeping love. Without jealousy, there is no love. So that's what I hope in the future you will think of when you think of jealousy. That's what I hope you will think of when you teach your kids about this attribute of God. And yes, even in your evangelistic encounters, as you talk about the whole God from the whole scripture, this is who God is. After stating his jealousy, the Lord explains further what that looks like in practice. So I want to go through these two parts to it. What does his jealousy look like in practice? First, It means visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, this is important because it gives the impression that if we engage in idolatry today, our grandkids and great-grandkids and great-great-grandkids tomorrow will bear 
that iniquity, that they will be punished regardless of what they do, they will be punished for our iniquity today. That is not what the text is saying. We know that from the text itself. What does it say at the end? Of those who hate me. In other words, uh, that continues, that hatred of God, by the way, hatred of God is idolatry, that hatred of God, that breaking covenant, that infidelity, it travels down generationally. It keeps going down the hill. And they too will hate the Lord. Deuteronomy 24, 16, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. And every person in hell will be there because of his or her own sin. Ezekiel 18, 4, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So this can't mean that irregardless of what happens in the future, we sin, our children pay the penalty. But here's what we need to understand. There is great effect on our children from our idolatry. You think you're just sailing along? Just bowing down? And I know I got into the quick a moment ago with the phones, but you think, that's what your kids see. You don't think that them growing up, seeing you constantly on that little device right here, is, is, is having an effect on them? You think you could just do that and you normalize that and that does not communicate idolatry to them? No, it does. It's traveling into future generations. Wake up. Parent patterns, habits continue down the road. We see this with the Israelites after Manasseh. They are sent into exile because of the grave sins of Manasseh. We see it with Canaan, with his relationship with his father Ham. Of course, the Israelites after Manasseh were sinful. And of course, Canaan, the Canaanites were sinful. But we see a connection here between father and children. What are we laying up for our children? What are you laying up for them? You feed them three times a day. That's good. Try to put them to bed on time, relatively speaking. That's good. Provide for them. Give them an education. Are you showing them covenant-keeping love between you and your God? Or are you just chasing and chasing, just sitting around discontent and bored and frustrated with life because your idols aren't pleasing you? Turn to the Lord today. Find joy in the Lord. Fear the Lord. Trust the Lord. And let your kids breathe that air. Drink that water. But we end on this note. Yes, the Lord visits that iniquity, transgenerational, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Notice the contrast here. This is a beautiful picture of who the Lord is. God in his mercy. God in his grace. God in his slowness to anger. God in his kindness. We see compared here that the iniquity is three or four generations. 
What do we see here with those who love me and keep my commandments? Steadfast love to thousands. And we cannot help to read this and not think of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he, 2,000 years ago, was perfectly faithful. He was entirely non-idolatrous, inconceivable. Inconceivable for any of us to think that Christ never sinned. As we think about his human nature with respect to the Father, he never sinned in this way. Never broke the first commandment. Never broke the second. What day goes by that we don't? He never did. And that steadfast love is just flowing like a torrent to thousands of generations to those who through Christ love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. To those who have had the love of God poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. All purchased by the one who perfectly kept the Lord's commands. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it reaches deep into our lives and cuts deep into our sin. Father, have mercy on us. Lord, forgive us for our sins. Would we seek that forgiveness this morning? Would we confess our sins? Would we turn away from our sins? Would we flee from our sins? Would we consider all the ways that we are being deceived. All the ways that the impact of our culture and the things that seem so normal are becoming more and more a part of our lives. Lord, would we purge ourselves of these things? Would we live unto you with love, keeping your commandments, keeping your word from the heart through Christ who strengthens us? And would our children though they see imperfection everywhere, that they would see in us hearts for you alone. Help us, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.